0: You're listening to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Isla Krem. This week, you get a chance to learn an IOTA or two. Literally, we're joined by Dan Zimmerman, the head of financial relations for the IOTA Foundation, which, in addition to being pawn fodder, is one of the more innovative cryptocurrencies out there. Enjoy.
1: One question might be good to dig into. How does DeFi staking and lending actually work? Could we dig into some of the details there just so that people get a better understanding of the mechanics behind it?
2: That's a really broad question, but I can kind of give one example, right? I think what's, what's really interesting, um, you know, there's a traditional mobile bank uh, that's, I think it's called Current and they're based in New York. And what they started doing is that they saw, okay, what people are looking for is yield. It's really hard to find yield in traditional uh, uh, banking like, uh, accounts. So what they did is they actually partnered with Polkadot and they worked with a DeFi, uh, I believe it's like a stable coin project. So if you are if you are staking um, Ethereum or if you're staking a token, you're actually earning a percentage of the transaction fees that are being generated on the network. So like a really good example of this, I don't know if you're all familiar with decentralized exchanges, but a really cool thing that you can do is that you know, there, there's no concept of kind of the traditional market maker. Instead, what anyone can do is that they can take an asset and they can put it in one of the pools, right? So if there's like an Ethereum USDC pair, those are two cryptocurrencies. And I think Uniswap is the best example of this by putting your capital in a pool so that there's enough liquidity for traders to interact with. You're actually earning a percentage of the fees that are generated. That's like a really good example. Of um, of like DeFi, where you're um, you're staking a coin in a market and you're earning a percentage of the activity that's happening. And then there's more traditional, or not traditional, but there's kind of um, I guess like simpler examples where, uh, oh, what's the name of it? Why am I blanking on it? Compound. Like with Compound, it's you know lending and borrowing. So if you put your you know token in uh, to be borrowed, you'll earn a. a, a a percentage of the the transaction activity that's happening.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, that's a great way to articulate that too. I I try to explain it. It's like, you know, all those things the big financial institutions do, take them out, cut out the the bureaucracy (laughs) and the golden parachutes and do it in a decentralized manner. And that's what kind of DeFi is attempting to be, which is kind of exactly what you're talking about. Um, One question, and this this might be a little bit specific, but we'll see, Um, asset allocation. So digital assets, there's all sorts of investment opportunities like you just said, in DeFi land, if you squint hard enough, kind of looks like you have revenue. Uh, so it's yeah. actually true, like you know, DTF type things. But has, how is asset allocation different in um, digital assets versus what TradFi, I think we're calling it these days, traditional finance? Um, how do you evolving, <laughs> where is that? Are they the same players just at a high level?
2: Is that what we're calling it now? I, I like that. That's <laughs> That's new to me, so. Um, I would say, and this is, you know, when we were doing our prep call, this was, I think kind of the theme that came up in this question is it's really a function for me, at least about looking at risk, because I think when you look at a traditional portfolio um, or like traditional finance, you may be familiar with like certain types of risk, right? There's um, operational risk for the firm. Uh, I don't know. There's maybe like macro risk when it comes to the economy. Um, But generally you're not looking at more fundamental risk, like, security risk or technical risk um, or even the risk of uh, you know, the team structures. I don't know if that would fall into operational. Um, but to me, that's kind of the biggest question when you're doing your portfolio allocation is, you know, the higher up you go, if you're looking at coin market cap, you can maybe make the case that, that um, some of those risk profiles are that they kind of have different risk profiles. So if you just you know, put your, if you're holding a digital asset and maybe it's the top 30, I think there's less risk there. And I think you could probably, you know, do well by creating a, um, uh, by creating a makeup, you know, having Bitcoin, Ethereum, most traditional firms feel more comfortable holding Bitcoin and Ethereum right now. And they're kind of slowly dipping their toes into other assets, but it's kind of dependent on a number of factors. But then for those that are a little more comfortable kind of going into the world of DeFi, where it's a complete wild, wild west, um, you're not only dealing with the potential, you know, Uh, upside. Um, But you're also dealing with, you know, how do you store these assets, right? Is it just on Ethereum? What happens if there's a hack? What if the team's anonymous? Um, What if DeFi becomes illegal, right? Because, you know, decentralized finance becomes outlawed or non-custodial, which means that basically you don't know who the account holders are. Like, what what if that becomes um, uh, uh, problematic? So I guess you could even say like regulatory risk, which I don't think you maybe have to look at too much when you're thinking about the traditional equities markets. So I, I would say that's probably the biggest thing when it comes to um, uh, to make up. I don't know if that, does that answer, like, is that the direction you wanted me to go? I could go in yeah. a number of different directions.
1: So that's a really good direction. And, and we got a PM question as well from Dan in terms of counterparty risk. When you participate in any staking program, how does counterparty risk actually work? Because you don't really know um, whom you're staking to or who's in the pool, it's often a blind pool. How do you think about counterparty risk in the staking?
2: Uh, you know, that's really interesting because there is, yeah, there's, yeah, there's risk of the project rug pulling. Very interesting. I was talking with one of the large, uh, one of the largest market makers a couple of days ago and they said, you know, we've been, we do traditional market making on the big exchanges like Coinbase and Binance, um, but we just got the go ahead to, um, uh, to do market making on dexes, so to do it on uniswaps and to, to you know provide pools, but we can't be the lead you know market maker. So I, I think that's kind of interesting that um, yeah. that the more traditional groups are starting to dip their toes in, but they just have to they can't have too much exposure, or their exposure can't do be too high relative to the total pool, or relative to um, uh, maybe you know the rest of their market making activities. But I think that's probably that's probably for. You know the ones that are highly regulated. There's a there's a middle ground of groups that maybe are in different allocate, uh, different regions, different geographies, or maybe they've just got smaller um, AUM, so they don't have to really be too concerned with that. Good point.
0: Um, and it is uh, to your question there. Uh, I think it was Kevin who asked that originally. Counterparty risk is a big deal. People disappear all the time. It's it's it is like uh, like Ken said. It's the wild wild west. Um, a question from Dennis Jukasy. It might be a bit specific, but are you familiar with Tangle? And is that something you've kind of dug into very much?
2: Yeah. So, you know, at a very high level, um, and I don't want to bore everyone because, again, I, this isn't a, this isn't a, an advertisement for IOTA. Uh, but I kind of shared a little bit earlier. Um, you know, it's really important when you're looking at different protocols is to understand like the, the core value proposition, um, because every protocol is different. And then, like you said, protocols are now birthing D apps, which kind of look more like traditional businesses. So I think it's just really important to understand like what the, the protocol's reasons for existence is. For IOTA, you know, in 2015, before, um, before, or kind of, yeah, as blockchain was being developed, they realized that blockchain doesn't really, even today I'd make the case, blockchain doesn't really fit into a lot of enterprise and onto a lot of real world use cases. So essentially what IOTA is, is that it's just an architecture that, um, that's not based on blockchain. So there's no miners, there's no stakers, and there's no fees. So, all that means is that if I want to send a data transaction, I can do that without being required to send a fee to a miner or a staker. So, what that does is that as we're starting to do our own ecosystem building, we're releasing a smart contract platform called ISCP. We're going to start to have a lot of DApps, we're going to have a lot of DEXs and launchers and stablecoin aggregators and like all these things. It's kind of fascinating to be one of the only protocols where, because there's no base level fee, there can be a lot of flexibility on how these application layer groups want to maybe create their own uh, fee structures. And even though there's some groups that are completely, or maybe they have like a cent for a fee or a half a cent, it's not how cheap you can get it. It's the fact that it's feeless at all. So it's, it's very binary because an enterprise company doesn't care if they have to pay a cent versus 20 cents. The concern is that now you, know, you talk to a big group, now they have to hold custody. Now they have to check with their legal team. Now they have to see the, all this stuff around. So there's a lot of questions. And then the last thing I'll say on that is that it's really, really important to understand at the protocol level, kind of the staying power. With IOTA and some of the other groups, you know, we're working towards becoming a global standard. So we want to be open source. We want to be open standard. We're working with, you know, some of the biggest governments around the world. That's very different than a group that's maybe based on the Silicon Valley model that's positioned themselves very much as a product. And then you kind of get into like community and all that. And i won't bore you there.
1: One of the bits that really kind of resonates when it comes to community is the NFT universe. And I know that it had a really hot hype in, in March and April. And now the, the number of transactions is kind of falling off the cliff a little bit. But I'm still curious to understand, how do these projects actually generate revenue? Because some of them really do. And you mentioned some really good ones during our prep call. Do you want to speak to some of those? And how, how, does, how really NFTs could generate revenue if they... it set up correctly.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, NFTs existed before the term NFT started, right? So like there have been, like there's a decentralized DNS project um, handshake. I think it was using NFT technology before NFTs went into favor, but NFTs really became popular once they merged with art. And so generally anything with art could be considered highly speculative, right? So we saw this, we saw this, this movement happen where now you could put a piece of art onto an NFT and then you can speculate wildly on it or just a thing, right? So now you've got these like bored apes where it's just a picture of of an ape like smoking a cigarette or like in a space suit and those are being speculated on because they think the value is going to go up. That's complete, I think, um, uh, what is it called? Um, Tulip territory, right? You're just hoping it's going to go up and then what happens to a whole crash. But I think that's just as with DeFi and just as with, I think, a lot of components of this um, industry, once you strip away and really look at the the core tech, there's some really interesting uh, things hidden in there. So with NFTs, you're basically just saying that they're in a digital world. You have something that you can um, provide some sort of evidence that you own it and that there's only one version of it. And that's really, really powerful. So what we talked about a couple of days ago, one of my favorite NFT projects is called Zed Run. I'm doing free marketing for them. Uh, Zed Run is a uh, digital horse racing sport. Really. It's not really a product. It's a sport. And so you have every horse is an NFT. Um, You can actually breed them. So you can breed NFTs and create a new horse. These horses can be sold, they can be raced, they can be bet on. So I can't share too much, but, you know, there's some, uh, they've got some really interesting partners. I know Atari's worked with them. Um, and their goal is to kind of like, you know, you can go to a casino and you can bet on a digital horse. And this horse is tied to an NFT. So I think we're going to see more things like this where, you know, it's going to be tied to real, real um, uh, activities like sports or um, Things that generate value that you want to be able to trade and bet on, things like that. And then I think we're also seeing that NFTs, because it is a you know it's an asset that goes into your wallet. You can also do some really cool things um, uh, like um, kind of like unlocking features, right? So imagine you've got a community that you want to incentivize. This could be in the world of investing. This could be in product development, uh, where you could say, okay, you know, we're going to raise a million dollars, and every time uh, and our NFT we're selling for a thousand dollars. If you acquire the NFT now, and it's in your wallet, and let's say that we have another general token, and let's say that we've got 5% yield on a staking program. If you're holding this NFT, now you get an extra 10%, right? So it can become like an unlocking feature. So you can think of it way more as this kind of functional uh, um, tool than just this, you know, speculative board apes, you know, I'm waiting for things to go to the moon. But as a general rule, it's always good to kind of, look past the hype, which can be difficult to do because there's always something really valuable hiding in there. And I think that's a really important investment thesis in general in this space.
0: That's great. And those are definitely some off-the-run uh, uh, strategies for NFT monetization. It's a little more direct if your name happens to be Berners-Lee though, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> uh, but with that, I think we're probably up to our first or second, depending on how you count these things, breakout rooms. Um, so a couple of quick housekeeping items when I get the slide up. Uh, it's not really a pitch session, it's for networking, so let's be respectful of that, be kind to one another. And uh, a big one, we don't send out a full participant list afterwards, so if you find somebody you want to connect with, connect. Uh, soft details there. But we do have a Telegram group as well, uh, so you can join that right after the call here. Uh, Isla, do you want to speak to format and rooms and
1: all that? Yeah, like? absolutely. So we'll pop you into rooms of four or five in just a moment. You'll be in there for about 10 minutes or so. And uh, the topic for the first one is how does how do digital assets fit into your personal allocation strategy? <laughs> if not at all, or kind of a little bit, or you're still still working on that strategy, so I'm to do that <laughs> room allocation now, and we will see you all back here in about 10 minutes.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully you had a good conversation about all things NFTs, or in my experience, the topic doesn't always come up. Uh, so hopefully you just met some interesting folks. So Dan, and as a reminder, you're probably muted again, so feel free to unmute yourself. Uh, another question... Another question around the, the boundary between traditional TradFi and uh, digital assets. VCs and digital asset product, projects, how are they viewed? Do, is it you know the same what we have today, which is Silicon Valley kind of owns that whole space? Is it more flat? What does kind of that dynamic look like?
2: Yeah, this is gonna be a controversial answer. So I apologize. Um, so my my, and this is only my own personal take on this. Um, there's kind of a stigma going on, or there was a stigma where many VC projects, they they were kind of tainted, right? Because the idea of blockchain and crypto, at least in 2000, you know, 2010 to 2017, um, was very much about, you know, open of the people for the public. And that can kind of be antithetical to the idea of Silicon Valley and blockchain, which is, you know, a power center of how do we create wins and how do we, you know, Uh, how do we centralize control? Um, and that's kind of getting a little, um, what's the word? It's getting a little, uh, idealistic or talking about that. But I I think one of the biggest differences is that, um, I think traditional VCs have kind of lost a little bit of the control, right? So it's no longer regional. You don't have to be based in Silicon Valley. And I, I don't think it's, it's no longer about, you know, what can any one group do for your success, Right. It's really, like I said earlier, it's really about how do you create a partner network? So that can include crypto VCs and there's still kind of this legacy, you know, you get a a good legacy crypto name and that can go far for you depending on what your strategy is. But I would make the case that if you are a project that are look, that's looking to raise capital, um, you really want to look for smart money that can help. That might include crypto VCs, but that could be, you know, builders, that could be connectors in different regions. That could even be like influencers that, you know, create a lot of popularity for you in your your, um, system. But I'd say it's kind of one thing. But then as a VC, if you kind of like turn that around, um, I think that uh, it's, like we said, there's a lot more risk, but um, I think you have to be, what we're always looking for, and I think what you have to be open and willing to is really know the space very well, but also be willing to collaborate. Like I, I would have calls with VCs, and I'd be like, "Okay, like, how can we collaborate? How can we work together?" And I, I heard answers like, "Oh, we generally don't partner with groups that that are suffering and need help." And I was like, "No, no, no, you misunderstand. Like, we're not we're not in need of like we're not having problems, and we don't need your help in that way. It's you, we want you as a collaborator. How can we work together? And how are you, how are you going to contribute?" So I, I think it's if you, as smart money as you can get, whether that's just having knowledge, whether that's being able to connect to other people in the in the um, in a network.
0: That's really interesting. So it sounds like uh, not necessarily the smart money and they're not not—they're a little bit more uh, mm. guarded than what the, the ethos is of uh, people that play in digital assets. As a general rule, obviously there's exceptions. That's that's pretty fast. Totally, totally, totally exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Ayla, are you ready with another round of breakout rooms by chance?
1: Absolutely. Same, same deal as previously. And uh, we'll have you guys give a quick chat about what are some of the... Almost too good to be true, digital asset opportunities you've seen recently, pools with thousands of APY um, a year, maybe some you know, new project somebody pitched to you that you thought can't possibly be right, but actually generate there. What are some of the too good to be true, but possibly actually totally true projects you've seen recently that you might want to share with the group? I'll open the room, so we'll see you back here just a moment before noon. Eastern time.
0: Welcome back everybody. And Dan, you're probably muted again, but uh, another question for you and we'll pick one up. You know, we'll talk about uh, specifically some of the projects and specifically airdrops. I know a lot of people, this is a strange concept that's relatively new. If you're playing with digital assets, how, what are airdrops? How do they work? How do they work into, how do they integrate into your investing strategy? And then specifically, like, I know you might have one or two projects that are near and dear to your heart that have upcoming airdrops. Uh, if that's something you can speak to. Uh, But just generally, what are your thoughts on that that subject and what's coming down the pipe here?
2: I cannot speak to them, Um, but what I can, I can talk about airdrops in general. Um, I'll I'll explain what they are and then I can kind of explain the strategy uh, around investing um, to take advantage of them. So essentially what airdrop is, is that it's it's a way to incentivize an investor or a user of the system to participate. Right. So many times it could be that you have a token and you can airdrop more of that token. Or in some cases, a completely independent project will piggyback off of a well known project to create a lot of users very quickly or to join a, a community very quickly. So, like an example would be um, I'm trying to think of something recently. I think uh, Ripple might have done something where they had, there was a third party group if you owned X percent of Ripple, a third party project would say, okay, we're going to airdrop, you know, a hundred of this coin to every Ripple holder, right? So that's, that's a very unique way to get your coin out very quickly. So what you can do as an investor, what people generally do is that they might look and they'll go, oh, there's going to be an airdrop. So a lot of people will buy the token. That's the target of the airdrop so that they'll receive the secondary token. And you can imagine what happens, right? So you'll see, generally the price of that base token go up because of the expectation. Now, what you have to be very careful of, and this is what we were talking about a couple of days ago, uh, kind of in the prep call, is that if you're playing this strategy, you also have to be prepared for that token to get that base token to go down in price, right? So there's a couple of different ways you can play that strategy. You can either buy the base token and then sell it before the airdrop happens, or you can hold that base token, receive the secondary token, and then, risk that base token going down. So there is a possibility you could buy it too high because you got it right before the airdrop and then the, the price goes down. Um, I, think, I think Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, that was like a really good example. I'm blanking on it, but that's kind of like an idea. Yeah.
0: It's kind of, uh, it's a way to get the community engaged, but it's also a way as the holder of those tokens. You're kind of just getting, um, I think we're a little bit past the hour. So let's do the windup. Uh, Telegram, join us. Um, as a reminder, if you haven't been in a little while, we had a technical issue. So some of you got booted. So if you have any issues or have any messages, let us know. We'll sort that out. Next week, Tuesday, 5 p.m. in downtown Chicago is our is a in real life uh, uh, diffuse app. So if you're in the area, do not be shy about joining we'll put the link in the follow up email. And then uh, next week, our, our future speaker is betting on the future of work. Very articulate. He has some really good ideas on the subject. I think you're, you're going to have a lot of fun with that. So with that, uh, Dan, thank you again for uh, speaking to the audience here. Thank you to everybody who came out today. And Isla, any talking points amiss?
1: Yes, DD30. Our fund is live. And, uh, and if you're interested at all in hearing more, let us know. Otherwise, see you next week.
0: Thank you, everybody. See you next week. You've been listening to Diffuse Tab with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoy these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday-ish at 10 a.m. Central. In addition to the fireside chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.